We're going to be in Romans chapter 6 this morning. Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 12. If you uh, read ahead, hopefully that was right in the ease news. I found myself, as I've been taking notes this week, I keep writing Romans 12, 6. <laughs> I don't know why, but I keep switching it up. So hopefully it was right in the e-news. But Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Our passage continues, but we're going to pause there uh, for just a little bit and maybe get to the rest of it uh, towards the end. So this is the second week in a row that we've had a reading from the New Testament that begins, and in the opening verse has the word, therefore. Uh, which, of course, we are reminded means that we cannot understand our passage for today without first understanding what comes first, because the passage that leads up to it is the reason, it is the, it is the context, the situation through which we're to understand what we are looking at. Now, I'm not going to preach two sermons on the book of Romans, because I think for any of us, two sermons on Romans is far too many for one morning. So let me summarize what Paul is talking about in verses 1 through 11. This whole passage is about being dead to sin and alive to God. Now, remember just a little bit of background on Romans. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. One of the things that's significant about it is he has not yet met these people He's not, whereas most of the epistles are Paul writing to people that he knows well, uh, this is less so. And so this is Paul's just overall picture, theology, the, the things that we need to know to understand our salvation, to understand what's happening when we become Christians, and to understand the life we are called to live. So in this passage, Paul is talking about how we enter into death with Christ as Christ was killed for the forgiveness of our sins, and he was raised to life. So we are to crucify our flesh, our sinful nature, and be made new in him. What he tells us in the first 11 verses is essentially that as we enter into the death of Christ, the sin that enslaved us before no longer has power and authority over us. That the sin that controlled all of our actions, all of our attitudes, that controlled the way we think and view things, controlled whether or not we are able to control ourselves and do the things God has called us to do, that no longer has power. 
And then he continues in our passage today to clarify what he means. Because Paul recognizes, and rightly so, that there are a lot of ways that we can misunderstand. That we can say, for example, okay, so sin has been crucified in me. I have been raised to new life. So that must mean that I will no longer ever sin again. And Paul says, no, that's unfortunately not the case, right? You're reading ahead a little bit too far. And we say, okay, well, maybe being crucified to sin into the flesh, perhaps that means that we are, are much more likely to not sin. And we can go all of these different directions. And before we really have a chance to go down that road, Paul says, let me clarify what I mean. So the precursor to today's message is the understanding that we have been set free from sin. And then today, what we are looking at is Paul explaining to us what that means. So that's where our passage this morning comes in. It's only a few verses. I'm going to read it again so it's fresh in our minds. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let's just stop right there. So the first thing Paul says is, okay, so you understand now that you've been raised to new life. Here's the first thing you need to know. And he says, let not sin therefore reign. He says, you have victory over sin. You have victory over death through Christ. But the first thing you need to understand is that it is still possible. It is still an option for sin to reign in your life. And whether or not sin reigns in your life, has authority, has dominion, has power, whether or not sin determines your actions, your attitudes, is up to you. Ultimately, it's a choice that you will make. And he, he, he tells us that by calling us to not allow it. Now, it's important to remember because we can say, well, man, wouldn't it be easier? <laughs> wouldn't it be easier if we just didn't have to make the choice? And it seems like there's still a lot that can go wrong if we have the option to allow sin to reign, which is why the first 11 verses of this passage are so critical, because we need to remember and we need to remind ourselves often that the way we were living, we didn't have that choice, that the way we were living, we didn't have the option to let sin reign or not. That when we are born into sin, when we are born into sin, we are under a dictatorship of sorts. We are, sla we are slaves born into slavery. We don't know anything else. There's no other option. We never get to vote. We never get to choose to move away or go to a different place or find a different circumstance. It is just the reality that we are in. And then the difference, the change that comes when we accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is that suddenly we have a different option. And yet, like the Israelites in the desert who, when things got difficult, wanted to return to their masters in Egypt, we too will often return to what is familiar. That when our 
Wrists are used to shackles, and the weight of steel on our arms, freedom, can be overwhelming. It can be uncomfortable. And so Paul urges us and reminds us not to go back to where we were. And then he continues to kind of explain why and explain what that looks like. And he says this, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So Paul paints this picture for us. That was a lot of P's in one sentence. Now I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to, sound, I'm going to feel really self-conscious about it. Paul paints a picture for us perfectly. On the one side, we have the way we used to live in bondage with sin reigning over us. And on the other side, he paints this picture of what it looks like and our other choice of presenting ourselves to God. And he says, essentially, you have been bought and you are free. You are free to move this way or that way. You are free to give yourself to sin and allow yourself to be used by sin or to present yourself to the Father to be used for righteousness. He says this, he says, present your members. Now, member in this context is the same way we use it. Uh, we really only ever use this word as a part of the larger word, dismember, right? Which is when you lose a, a limb or any other body part, right? It's your members, it is, it is the, the makeup of your body, all of the different parts and pieces that come together to make your physical body. Not to make you entirely, but to make your body. It is everything, essentially, metaphorically, he's saying everything that's at your disposal. So your feet and your legs, where you go, the places you go, part of your members. Your hands, your arms, the things that you do are your members. Your mouth, the words that you speak to other people. Your mind, the things that you think the things that you come up with, the decisions you make as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a worker, as a stranger. All of those, those, that's your members, all of the pieces of yourself. And he says you present it. So you either present it to sin or you present it to God. This idea of all of the things that you can do, all of the potential that you have. Now, it's interesting. When he describes these two relationships, there's something that, that you'll notice, maybe you already have, but the relationships he describes are different. There's one distinct difference. Not good and evil, that's, that's a difference in God and Satan and good and evil, right? That's but a, there's a significant difference in the relationship that we have to evil or to good. 
Look what he says. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Our relationship with sin is just this presentation of all that we are, all of our usefulness, right? The word members is essentially all of the things that we can do. And the word instruments here is used to describe tools or, in certain contexts, weaponry. Right? So he says, don't present the pieces of who you are to sin as tools for sin to use. But instead, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So in both of these relationships, all that you are, all that you have, what you have to offer, all of your usefulness is presented. And if you present that to sin, all of your potential, all that you can do, will be used for the goals and the work of sin. You will be used to hurt and destroy both yourself and others. If you present yourself to God, you will be used to build others up, to build yourself up, to bring life and love and joy into the world. But beyond that, before God sees how he can use you, he sees how he has redeemed you. And he sees who you are as a person. We use the term often, but far too narrowly, objectify. We talk often, especially in the church, about objectifying other people. And I would say, just to make up numbers, probably 80% of the time that we use that, we're talking about men objectifying women, and probably 96% of the time, to talk about sexual relationships in general, right? But ultimately, there are far more ways to objectify another person than just in the context of sexual relationship. Objectification is ultimately when I look at another person and I see how they are useful to me before I see who they are as a person. And yes, we do see that very often in that one context, but ultimately it can happen in any way. If you're the one friend with a pickup truck, you know what this looks like, perhaps. Oh. Now that's maybe a, a lighthearted example, maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's a if you have someone, if you have a pickup truck, and you have someone that the only that when you see their name on your caller ID, you think, I better get my truck keys. Because they're calling me because they just bought a couch. <laughs> That's an example of an, obje an objectified relationship. And I'm tempted to qualify that by saying it's not a big deal and it may sound silly, but, but ultimately, isn't that one of the greatest lies that sin tells us? 
is that you can do something for the wrong reasons, and as long as nobody's tremendously hurt by it, it doesn't matter. But ultimately, it's a step in that direction. Now, maybe you don't own a pickup truck, but you can probably think of situations in your life where you've known people that the only reason you had any relationship with them was for what they could get out of you, for what they could use you for, how you could benefit them. We, we, I, I don't know everyone, and I don't know everyone's experiences, but I believe I can say with confidence that we all know what it feels like to have relationships with people that don't ever come close to seeing us. With people who never value us for anything but what we can give to them. And I don't think any of us like to have relationships like that. And what we can be tempted to do in those relationships is just make sure that the objectification is mutual enough that we're both equally getting something out of it. And you get this from me, and and I get this from you, and so it balances out, and I feel better about it. It's a fair trade, but, but ultimately, those are not the relationships that bring us life. That those are not the people that we call when there's a tragedy. Those are not the people that we call when we need someone that we can count on to show up for us. And so we all just, by living and being humans in relationship with each other, we have an understanding of what that type of relationship looks and feels like. And isn't it interesting that that is exactly how Paul describes the difference between a relationship we have with sin and the relationship we have with God. That if you are a Christian and you present yourself to God, he will use you. Whatever you have, it's a guarantee. And you may not feel like you have a lot. You may, like Moses, say, I I can't speak, I'm not eloquent, I can't can't talk, I can't share. You You may feel like you have nothing to offer, but the promise is that God sees great value in you. And so if you are a Christian who presents yourself to God and says, God, use me, he will. If you find somebody in our church who's in trades, if you need one, you can talk to Keith afterwards. (laughs) He'll be in the lobby answering questions. (laughs) If you were to go through, Keith's an electrician, if you were to go through his tools, you would find things that you have no idea what to do with. You would find things that you have no idea what to do with. And some things you would say, well, this is a pair of pliers, or he's probably got a hammer in there somewhere. You would find things that you... But you would find tools, and you would say, I have, this looks weird. I don't know what it's for. I have no idea what to use it for or what it's good for. If you found it in your garage, you'd probably throw it away because you would say, this is good for nothing that I have to do. Because you don't understand it, you don't have the knowledge, you don't have the understanding, you don't have the expertise, but God sees all of us, even those of us that look like some 
weird tool that couldn't possibly have a purpose. And he says, I know exactly what that's for. He says, I know exactly what it's for. And what's also interesting about those types of tools is you might not use them often, but when you do, there's nothing else. There's nothing else that will do the job. The one tool that probably gets used more than anything is the hammer. So the hammer probably feels very useful. However, I can look around my garage at any given moment and find about 20 tools that'll work like a hammer in a pinch. If I've got one nail I need to drive in, I can grab a big pipe wrench and that'll do the trick. It won't work as well. But if you need to snake a wire through a wall, a hammer is not going to get you very far. (laughs) So we are all useful. And God will use us in the same manner, although different consequences, as sin. But before that, before that, He wants us to present ourselves. When you present yourself to sin, it doesn't care what you're struggling with that day. Sin doesn't care about your insecurities. It doesn't care about your joy. It doesn't care about your self-esteem. It doesn't, really doesn't care about your peace at all. So much so, in fact, that it'll probably work to use you, you against yourself to destroy those things. And Paul says, look, you, you can, you have the option to present yourselves still to sin. And to let sin reign, have authority, have sin call the shots. But this is what that relationship is going to look like. And we're inclined to say, well, what if I just call my own shots? What if I just do the things that I want to do? Why isn't that an option? We want that to be an option. And in fact, sin will convince us that That is an option. But Paul, as he's revealing sort of what's happening behind the curtain here, says, look, there's only two choices. The hammer's never going to pick itself up off the ground to work. The the hammer will never pick itself up self up off the ground, where it goes and what it does must be determined by someone else, by something else. It can be used to build or it can be used to destroy. And which of those things is happening is determined by who is holding it. And sin will try to convince us that we're just pounding the nails that we want to pound. It will give us this illusion that we are in control, 
that we are following what we desire. But Paul says, look, Look, you're Christians. You've trusted in Jesus for your salvation. You believe that God is real. You believe that his son was real. You believe that his son died to save you. You you believe that there is sin in the world and you've been enslaved to it and you needed to be forgiven. If you didn't believe that you needed to be forgiven, you wouldn't have asked Jesus to forgive you. You wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be reading this letter. Right? This letter is written to believers. So this isn't Paul trying to convince us that sin exists. This is Paul explaining how sin exists to people who already believe. He says, look, here's how it works. There's the holiness of God and there's the depravity of sin. One or the other will be in control of your life. Those are your options. There's no middle ground. It's light or it's dark. There is no in between. There is no middle ground. There's no other option. So if you're not over here, If you are not presenting yourself to God, if you are not allowing God to reign in your life, then you are in this relationship which doesn't care about you. So much so that it doesn't even see you as a person. There's no mention of personhood in our relationship with sin. To sin, you're just a toolbox. There have been times in my life where I've needed to pound a nail so bad that I'll grab something that I don't really care about that's going to go in the trash anyway and just... Or maybe I need to knock something over. But there have been times where I have misused a tool to accomplish my purpose because I didn't care about it because it was junk, it was old, it was going in the garbage anyway. That's the relationship that sin has with you. Sin says, I want to break this wall down. I want to destroy this good thing. And I don't care what it's going to do to you. I'm going to use you to do it. And by the end, everything is in disrepair. Sin doesn't reward the people that do its will. Sin will give you the desires that it has placed in your heart and those desires will themselves destroy you. So church, I know this is a hard discussion to have when we've been in the faith for a long time. This is a hard discussion to have if you've been a Christian for 30 or 40 or 60 or 70 years. Because, of course, none of us would want to say that we're letting sin reign in us after all that time. But I believe that all of us need to take inventory of ourselves often. 
and maybe nearly everything about yourself. About your person, about your physical body, about your personality, about your thoughts. Maybe nearly everything is surrendered to God. But is there something that you haven't thought about in a while? Is there an area in your life, whether from lack of attention to it, perhaps it's something God never called you out of, is there an area in your life that perhaps you didn't even realize you are still allowing sin to reign. Which is uncomfortably strong language for things especially that we try to minimize. Whether it be, well, I just get a little impatient sometimes when we need to allow God to reign over our schedule and over what we accomplish in a day. Whether it's, well, I just get a little frustrated and angry sometimes. We're not allowing God to fully reign over our priorities and our relationships, or even the way we view ourselves, which is perhaps one of the most difficult In our language, there can be a fine line between humility and self-deprecation. But in our hearts, they're opposites. You bow your heads with me. And uh, if I can get somebody to come play piano. Thanks, Beth. Let's just pause for a few moments. And maybe you've never fully surrendered yourself. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning saying, that sounds like all of my life, that, that I believe, but I've given control to sin. And it's breaking me, it's breaking my relationships, it's... It's breaking the, the dreams that God has given me and the, the person I want to be and the places that I want to go. Or maybe you're the person in the room who's been believing longer than anyone else. You've lived a life devoted to God. I want to speak against the lie this morning that says if you pray about this it's because you messed up it's because you're bad it's because you're evil because ultimately the message that Paul's ha Paul has for us is not just one of chastising us of telling us what we do wrong and that we're bad and that we messed up it's a call to the freedom that he describes and that's my call to you this morning. Not a call of, of guilt and shame, but of 
If there is an area in your life where sin still has dominion, you can be free of it this morning. Free from the pain that it causes to you or to those around you. Free from the way that it just wants to use you and break you. And you can be free to be in a relationship where you are seen not just for what you can do or how you can be used, but just because of who you are. So if there is an area in your life where you are realizing God is revealing to you that you are still allowing sin to call the shots, allowing sin to determine your attitudes and your thoughts and your actions, I would invite you to come to kneel at the altar, to lay those things down, to let sin know that it no longer has that seat of authority. There is someone new sitting on that throne. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we can get so hung up on whether or not we're doing enough. But Lord, if we are believers that are buying into that, if we are believers that are sitting here thinking, oh, I've messed up, I've done the wrong thing, then Lord, I pray that we rebuke that first lie of the enemy that we are in charge. I pray that first, Lord, we are set free from that bondage of bearing the weight of our salvation on our own shoulders. Father, for all those in this place, I pray freedom from the damage that sin causes. I pray freedom from the choices that it calls us to make, from the addictions that it tries to grip us with. I pray those chains be loosed today. Father, none of us want a relationship with someone who only sees us for what we can do for them. Let alone someone who only sees our use and wishes us harm. We pray for those, Lord, that have been so enslaved to sin that they begin to even seek out human relationships that mirror the relationship that they have with their sin. That they're so used to the chains of sin abusing them and objectifying them and not caring about them that they seek out and are more comfortable with other people that treat them that same way. And it's so easy, Lord, to look at someone who fails to leave relationships that are abusive and harmful and manipulative. It's so easy for us to look on them with condemnation and say, well, 
If they wanted something different, they could just leave. They choose to continue being in those relationships. And we see the choice they make on the outside with our physical eyes. And we fail to see the bondage that lies within with the sight of your spirit. And so we pray for those in our world that are enslaved. That those, Lord, who are addicts, there's nothing different about the sin in their life save that the sin in their life has gone as far as it wants to go. It's come to the end of its road where it has full dominion and authority and control over that person. Addiction is just sin fully developed, Lord, and we pray for the deliverance of those who suffer from it. As we leave this place, Lord, may we leave as free people. Father, I give you my priorities. Let my days and my weeks, may my actions not be directed by what I feel is most important. But God, reign over my reign over my priorities. Father, you decide what is crucial and what can wait, what needs to be done and what doesn't. You decide where I go first. May I not push in war against that. May I not struggle against you, but may I follow. May I listen and may I obey. Send us from this place to serve, to put others first always as you came to serve us. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died to give us this freedom. Amen.